This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. So good to see you. This is Wayne. Richard. How are you? Richard. How you doing? I'm doing well. Hi. My name's Carol. I'm Wayne's wife. Thank you. Good to meet y'all. Desmond Kendrick and Wayne Witcher are descended from the families at the center of the 1859 feud that stunned Virginia. In the summer of 2021, I asked them to meet me at the Mountain View Plantation, the Clement family's property in Penhook. Wayne's wife, Carol, was there too. It was sort of a family reunion, a meeting that both men were looking forward to. Wayne and I had just looked at the Clement family cemetery behind the mansion. More excited about meeting you and everything. Have you all already walked out in there to the cemetery? We sure did. Yeah, and I know it's grown up. We picked up some wild raspberries, and and you're talking about where the where the wall Mm -hmm. was, where it's been broken down. There was one modern tombstone there, and the rest of them are field stones. See, I was a little kid, and one of my great aunts brought me over here and sat out here under this tree. Now, this house nobody lived in it at that time frame. And she explained to me who this was, and I remember precisely, we went out to that cemetery, and, uh, you know, I probably asked who they were, because I've always loved pictures. I've never forgot that. Wayne and Desmond spent some time discovering family history, perhaps the first time in years that a Clement and a Witcher had done this. Later, we'll go to a much bigger reunion. Wayne has many questions for Desmond. Wayne is hoping that Desmond can help fill in some gaps in his genealogy research because Desmond, far down the line, is also related to a witcher. Tell me the witcher connection. You said you were part witcher also? Yeah, and and the witcher side is in another line. It's not in my Clements. But I had Atkins family, which just about everybody, as you know, has Atkinses somewhere. Mm -hmm. And in my Atkins line, uh, the old William Witcher had a daughter named Elizabeth, and she married Napier. That's my fourth great-grandmother, so oh, William's great. my fifth great-granddad. You would not happen to have a copy of the family Bible, the Clement family Bible, which has some notation in it as to who William Witcher's wife was. I think were. I do. I would have to look again. I've seen it. I mean, I remember the family Bible. It was a big Bible. I don't have that Bible. This is the Holy Grail for Wayne. I right. think he could die after this. <laughs> and James was in this house also at some point. Is that James right? James grew up here. This okay. house was built in 1811. Okay. So James and William and Ralph all grew up here. There were 11 of them. Dr. Clement married my grandmother, who was Sarah out here. So she had to a boy and a girl. So she brought them here. That made 13 kids. And then she subsequently had six more. The first two that she had was Mary Frances and Susan Charlotte. They were two little babies. One of them was six weeks old. One was 18 months old. They had a nurse here, and she poisoned them. We don't know whether it was accidental or intentional. Medicines weren't always measured at home correctly by caretakers or parents, and even doctors didn't always get the dosages right. But intentional poisonings were also a lot more common in the 1800s than they are now. 
It just wasn't as easy to detect poison in an autopsy in the 1800s. So that death in the Clement family was a mystery. Desmond Kendrick and Wayne Witcher are both committed to learning as much as they can about their families, regardless of whether the information frames their ancestors in a positive or a negative light. And there seems to be a lot of negative in both the Clements and the Witchers, but especially the Clements. Bill Garant says that Desmond knows all about James Clement's reputation, but that Desmond believes that his great-great-uncle didn't represent all of the Clements. Well, Desmond may have told you this. I mean, he I've heard him say he thinks it's part of his responsibility to defend the legacy of his uncles, you know, the Clements. No, he yeah. had not said that. Sir. I've heard it, I've heard him say that. I spent the day talking with Desmond about his family, and I noticed that he always referred to his great-great-uncles and great-great-aunts as just aunts and uncles. He mentioned several times that he had no bad feelings toward the Witchers, no matter what happened, just like all of this happened yesterday, not 160 years ago. But his great-great-uncle, James Clement, along with his two brothers, were at the center of all of the terrible events that took place back in 1860. And Desmond admits that they clearly had troubles. Bill said something interesting to me. He said that he has heard you say that kind of clearing your uncle's names is very important to you. And now that I've listened to you, I can understand that connection for you. It seems to me like you just feel all of this more deeply than most people do. And yeah. you connect it to your childhood. Is that right? That's right. But I mean, I don't look at it per se like I'm really trying to clear their names. It's just growing up, I was taught the respect for them, you know, just because they were family. In my thinking, in my opinion, I can see the three of them as hotheads. I can see the three witchers as hotheads. I don't blame anybody, honestly, on it. Desmond is a state archivist, and he knows an incredible amount about digging into historical data. So his research on his own family tree is very, very thorough. His interest in the Clements led to his lifelong career, and it really started because he spent so much time with his grandparents. My mom and dad both worked, so my mom's parents had a little country store, and I spent a lot of time in that store because my grandmother wouldn't just let anybody babysit me because she didn't think they knew how to take care of me with medicines and what have you. And so she kept me there. As a child, Desmond battled spinal meningitis, and he needed a lot of attention from his family. There were always older people sitting around the little store, and they would tell tales about so-and-so lived here, so-and-so lived there, my parents did this, or they did that. And I kind of listened to that, and I picked up on it. And so that got me interested in other families. And so I started taking notes when I was probably 10, 11 years old on people they talked about, and I would ask questions. Where did your mom and where did your dad live? And so I learned early on to have an interest and to write about what I call the little people. Desmond calls the people that he studies little people if they weren't famous in Virginia. And that's what's funny about family stories. They're passed down from generation to generation, and soon the facts become conflated with fables. It's hard to sort out what really happened and who your relatives really were. Historical documents can help, which is what I told Vicki Borden. I have this book that has everything, all the transcripts. Some lovely woman in Virginia went down to the historical center and got all of the handwritten transcripts and typed out everything in this book. It's probably about 150 pages. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. So what happened to them? 
After my first conversation with Vicki Borden, she began reading through the book that I sent her containing all of the details about the marriage written by James and Victoria themselves. These are legal documents, and they are the closest narrative to the truth that we'll get. And those details were upsetting to Vicki, particularly about the final days of their marriage. James was her great-grandmother's father, so Vicki's never felt compelled to pick either side because she is both a witcher and a clement. But she's surprised about the accusations against James. I have lived this, and I have never heard any of this. I never heard anyone say one unkind word about James Clement. I never heard anything about abuse of anyone or anybody. Remember, there are two sides to every story. Ten months after their wedding, James and Victoria Clement welcomed their daughter, Lelia Maud Clement, on March 1st, 1859. The physician who delivered her reported that the baby seemed healthy. Victoria was not. After giving birth, Victoria became very ill with a childbed fever, likely the same type of infection that killed scores of women in the 19th century. She coughed and struggled for several weeks as both families worried about her. A physician made house calls frequently to check in on her. During one visit, James circled the bed as the male doctor examined Victoria. He checked her vitals by placing his hand on her chest. You can imagine James's reaction to that. Not good. After the physician left, James raged at Victoria with Lilia Maud lying next to her. He leveled the same accusations at her that he had for months about cheating and lying. But now she was extremely sick, and he still seemed to have no sympathy. When historians examine the past, it's important to keep in mind that the sources were not always reliable. And Desmond Kendrick reminds me of that. Much of what we've heard about so far has come from Victoria Clement through her divorce deposition. Desmond and Vicki Borden both read the depositions. They say that both families had reason to add extra details to their stories. She supposedly had suitors. Now, whether she did that or whether she didn't is not my intention anymore to judge her by it because she's my aunt. I mean, I don't know what she did and what she didn't. When I was reading Victoria's complaint, and then I read his, and I thought, no, it really isn't. You know, he's the man, whatever he says, you know, he disputes everything she says, and it just made me angry. So you got two different point of views from two different families. So either one could be right, either one could be wrong. So you didn't lean one way or the other. Well, I didn't like James very much, and I thought he was just arrogant and probably a lot of truth about his um, personality. I felt sorry for her. I felt like she was probably in a very bad marriage and an unhappy one. I didn't believe a lot of what he said. You didn't? Okay, so you thought she was more believable? Well, I think she exaggerated a lot because she was desperate. I don't believe that she had an illicit affair with Gilbert while James was asleep in the bed. That's ridiculous. But James was certain about Buck Gilbert. One day at church service, Victoria stood up from the ladies' pew with Lilia Maud and left to nurse the little girl. James jumped up to go with her, despite her quiet but firm objections. He eyed her as she walked past Buck Gilbert, the man that he suspected was sleeping with his wife. 
When Victoria returned, he hissed at her that he was sure that she winked at Buck. That was his proof of their affair, said James. Victoria had learned months ago that responding to James would result in even more accusations, even louder and more offensive than the last. Like all of the other times, this outburst eventually waned. The last fight of their marriage happened at the end of the summer, just three months after their one-year anniversary. Victoria climbed out of bed on August 24, 1859, and picked up Lilia Maud, who was now almost six months old. Victoria seemed to embrace motherhood. She bonded with the little girl instantly, despite struggling through an illness. Her family, the Witchers, had hoped that James would be a good father, that parenthood would temper his temper. It did not. James still continued to rant about other men, about Victoria's occasional bouts of sassiness toward him. It all seemed so disrespectful to James. He worked hard for their small family, but Victoria seemed to be creating even more distance between them than before they had Lilia Maud. James seemed particularly abusive that Wednesday morning. He watched his daughter squirm around her bed. He glanced over at Victoria and glared at his wife. James felt constantly abused by her, he would later claim. He remembered the time when his wife punched him. He warned her to stop hitting him and yelled that if she did it again, that he would certainly box her jaws. James says she stopped and never did it again after that, and that he would never have hurt her physically. He just wanted her to act right, to obey his wishes, whatever they were. That morning, Lilia Maud reminded him of a joke that Victoria had made when she was still pregnant, a very disrespectful joke that she knew would upset him. Months earlier, his wife had been exasperated, and she felt like needling him, according to James. She wondered aloud what he'd think if the baby turned out to have black eyes. The implication was, of course, that it would not be James's baby, but the child of one of their enslaved men. At the time, James glared at her, smirked, and said, If they are black, then I'll own it. By the time this feud between the two families ends, at least a half a dozen men will have done dreadful things to each other, and you might actually begin to feel sorry for some of them. Little Lelia Maud would lose several family members, important people to her whom she would never know. Some would die painfully, while others would learn a painful lesson about family loyalty and revenge. But Vicki Borden's daughter, Jane Borden, reminds us of the bigger picture here. We shouldn't feel too sorry for any of them. These are men, you know, let's be honest, who are committing atrocities on a daily basis by owning slaves and treating them the way slaves were treated. So it wasn't out of character. There's no record of how many enslaved people the Witchers and the Clements owned. But in the legal documents, there are several men, women, and children listed as property. In the depositions that would follow, witnesses talked casually about chasing down runaway slaves and punishing them. And of course, there was no outrage in the proceedings or in the press over this kind of disgusting talk. It was all so common. Even Victoria Clement kept a close eye on the enslaved people in her household. 
Janice Kennedy is a historian with Colonial Williamsburg and an expert in the Black experience in historic Virginia. She says that being an enslaved person in rural Virginia in the 1800s meant that the work never stopped, ever, and they were always in danger. Because even when the season for planting and sowing and, and harvesting is over, who's mending fences? Who's cutting the timbers for the fences? Who's clearing the land and grubbing up stumps and burning off the overgrowth and the underbrush? See, the work never stops. But if you're out there, you probably can find some moments of time to be away as opposed to being under somebody's thumb. But the work never stops because once you get this spot over here cleared, if your owner has nothing for you to do, guess what? Well, your free hands can go help somebody else. I can contract you out. So it's always the prospect of making money. Your labor doesn't stop. And now, some of the enslaved people kept by James and Victoria would become deeply involved in their crumbling marriage. That morning, James Clement was still bitter and furious over Victoria's comment about their child's black eyes, a jab that James says she took just to upset him. It did, and now he wanted to punish her. As his wife quietly made their bed, he demanded one more time that she admit her infidelity. When she refused, James snapped. He flung open the door and bellowed into the yard for the six-year-old enslaved boy named Silas. Victoria started to cry as James dragged the boy into the house and ripped off his clothes. As the boy stood there naked, James lashed him until he bled. Silas screamed and cried for his mother while James coldly continued to monitor his wife's reaction. Victoria said that James paused, glared at her, and claimed that he was abusing the boy because the child did something wrong while working in the Clements tobacco field. She wasn't doing her job as the manager of their household. She should have punished him herself. Victoria wept until he finally stopped and released Silas. Later that night, Victoria accused James of whipping Silas just to upset her. He told her that this was all her fault, and after they ate, he would tie up the child and whip him until he died. Wayne Witcher had never heard anything about this story until I read it to him in Victoria's bill of complaint against James. I cannot get over what you told me, and that is that he pulled slaves in front of her, pulled their clothes off, and beat them in front of her just to make an impression. And so that alone, to me, indicates the violent nature of this man. I'm afraid of him, and I don't know the man. That type of behavior is incomprehensible to me. Wayne says he had suspected from family stories that James had anger problems, but it's different when you read about an attack so vicious like the one against the little boy. It tells me that Mr. James Clement was a hothead and was very insecure, and I wouldn't stay with the guy either. As Victoria quietly cleared the table of their dinner plates, she was anxious. She knew that James would kill Silas just to spite her, but not if James couldn't locate him. Victoria raced around the property until she found the boy. She told him to run through the darkness to his mother's house about three miles away. He did, and she returned to find James furious, demanding that she tell him where the child was. 
Victoria refused, and he said, you must now look out for the worst. Fearing for her life, Victoria flung open the door and mounted a nearby horse as an enslaved woman held a crying Lelia Maud. James snatched the baby and ordered Victoria to leave. She raced off into the night toward her mother's house, just a short ride away. But soon, James followed her there. Victoria's mother answered the door, and James curtly asked to see his wife. When Victoria came to the door, he coldly asked if she would return to be with their daughter. After thinking about it for a few moments, Victoria sadly agreed that she couldn't imagine being without Lelia Maud. And maybe this horrible incident might somehow change James for the better. Wishful thinking. The next morning, Victoria returned to the house. She and James were quiet as she took care of Lelia Maud. He seemed sullen. That night around 9 o'clock, as Victoria climbed into bed with Lilia Maud, she heard her husband tell an enslaved man to prepare a horse for him to leave the house at a moment's notice. He also ordered that a bucket of very hot water be brought inside. What was he planning? James ordered two enslaved women who were living upstairs to come down to their bedroom chambers. He accused them of aiding in Victoria's infidelity. He told them that he would use the hot water to torture them until they confessed. Victoria screamed and ran around the house looking for weapons. The guns and the knives were all gone. She yelled loudly for help as Lilia Maud began crying. James released the two women and ordered everyone but Victoria to leave the house. He bellowed that he had hired someone for $5 a week to watch her and the man had returned with proof of her affair. James insisted that he wouldn't kill her, but she must confess. Victoria feared that he had weapons, which he denied. Then Victoria did something smart. She asked for proof of where the weapons were being kept, and James briefly left the room. When he turned, Victoria raced through the door and into the darkness in her bare feet as James watched. She ran about a mile to Johnston Clement's house, James's brother. Soon, James mounted a horse and rode after her. When James arrived and demanded that she return, Victoria refused. He seemed concerned how it might look for him to force Victoria to go home, so James reluctantly left her there. Within a day, Lilia Maud was gone from her father's house. A justice of the peace removed her from the Clement home despite James's pleas. The infant was placed with Victoria at her mother's home, where she was expected to remain until the divorce was settled. Victoria would never return to the home that she had worked so hard to establish. Her marriage was over. Wayne Witcher keeps returning to James's abuse of the enslaved boy, another reminder of how cruel slave owners could be with impunity. To me, that's cruelty at another level, to inflict pain on an innocent child just to make your point to the person that you're having a problem with. I also think this is an issue of child custody. Boy, when you are talking about the custody of children, that takes it to a whole other level. Wayne's right. Both sides hurled accusations at each other about emotional and physical abuse. But ultimately, this came down to a battle over their baby, Lilia Maud. 
and Jane Borden is still confused about what exactly happened the night that Victoria left. That's been the burning question for me as I just want to know what happened because there's so many accounts and some of them say that, that she feared violence and that that's why she ran. To flee in the middle of the night and leave your child, I mean, I would assume that that's what's happening. Well, remember, it sounds like James had a history of basically imprisoning her in that house. And then he stalked her and told her to avoid all men. And then he put those chairs around the bed. So it was a lot. Yeah. He set up almost like a booby trap kind of situation in the bedroom. So he would know when she was coming and going, which is like, that's classic domestic abuse behavior. That's controlling. That's like textbook nowadays. So that tells me that, yeah, she needed to get out of there. Domestic abuse court judge Dimple Mahaltra agrees with Victoria's description of habitually abusive behavior. It's kind of an ongoing terrorism, is the way I describe it, in an intimate relationship. You see things like that. So maybe you don't see physical violence necessarily, but you definitely see those types of controlling behaviors and that type of uh, intimate terrorism. Judge Maholtra describes one type of intimate terrorism, as she calls it, like what Victoria said James had inflicted on her. I've had more than one case in my career where the perpetrator or the batterer asked to see the victim's underwear to inspect her underwear every time she came home, even if it was from work. And so, you know, those kinds of behaviors instill a level of fear that is sometimes equivalent to or more than someone who is physically abusive. Wayne Witcher says that Victoria was very brave to leave, especially because she was a woman in the 19th century. All I can say is that if a woman fears for their life, they have every right to run from the aggressor. And she did the right thing by leaving that house and running for her life. And I would do the same thing. Those times were different than now. And a lot of times it seems to me that the weight of law sided with the men Desmond Kendrick says that it's important to try to keep perspective about the past because there's no way to know the whole story. And when James told his version, it was very, very different. Who was telling the truth? Didn't sound like James was being the best husband. Right, right. I didn't know him. I didn't see him. But on the same token, his wife, Victoria, when I was growing up, she was still spoke of by my great aunts as Aunt Victoria. They didn't know her either. And so I was taught to respect her because of who she was, even though supposedly the feud was over her, which I think that probably was a big part of it, but not all of it. Soon, both sides were able to explain what happened. And as others have said, the truth was in there somewhere. But both James and Victoria were desperate to keep the other one away from Lelia Maud, who wasn't even a year old. It might have been the end of the marriage, but it was just the beginning of the feud. This story still has so many twists and turns. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
On August 30th, 1859, Victoria Smith Clement filed for divorce from James Clement. And Wayne Witcher says that this was an unusual case because Victoria was the one who filed for divorce, which wasn't easy in the 1850s for anyone, let alone a woman. She didn't just run down with your local lawyer to the courthouse and file for divorce and expect that it was going to be um, concluded in a few months. You actually had to petition a lawmaker. In other words, they had to pass a bill which allowed that divorce to happen. It was literally an, an act of Congress, so to speak, at, at the state level. Victoria filed for divorce by submitting the bill of complaint. It detailed seemingly every moment of terror that she felt while married to James. She described how he harassed every man who looked at her, how he forbade her from leaving the house on most days. He was profane and abusive and a terrible husband. James and the Clements received the documents from Victoria's legal representative and didn't immediately respond. But when they did, James's own accusations were damning. James complained that Victoria was rarely at home, and when she was, that she was verbally and physically abusive to his friends and family. And in fact, she had verbally and physically abused him, but he refused to act. Victoria was never affectionate toward him and very cold, he said. And some of the Clements would confirm that she was not very kind to them. James claimed that Victoria was very fond of Buck Gilbert and she visited him and his family often, which seemed wholly inappropriate to James. Someone was constantly harassing him at night by shaking the windows and doors, which was why he responded by sneaking around the house carrying a pistol. He said it's true that he did insist on accompanying her to church, but that's what proper husbands should do. James said that he had never reprimanded Victoria for allowing the doctor to touch her breast. The doctor did nothing wrong, so there was nothing to be upset about. He did whip the enslaved boy, but only because he had disobeyed James and the boy's mother several times. In fact, he blamed Victoria for not punishing the boy herself. James never threatened to kill enslaved women. Why would he hurt females whom he considered to be his valuable property? He did admit to beating various people that night, but in the mid-1800s, abusing a black person wasn't considered egregious or surprising. He had no problem admitting to that. In his response, James denied all of Victoria's accusations, except for his strong reaction to Buck Gilbert, because the man was clearly hoping to seduce Victoria, and it appeared to be working. The night that Victoria left for a second time, James said she walked out. She didn't run. He said she bent down and whispered to Lilia Maud, Farewell, my child, forever. I never expect to see you again. May God's blessing rest on you. Two days after that response, James filed a court order demanding that Lilia Maud be removed from Victoria's custody and placed with his sister temporarily. James accused Victoria of being unfit to rear Lilia Maud to be a proper woman. He agreed that the baby should stay with her mother until she was done breastfeeding when Lilia Maud turned two, and then the girl should be immediately removed from Victoria's home. Victoria responded by requesting that she continue to have sole custody as well as child support. She argued that James was an unfit father, and she knew that he had quite a bit of money. 
James, of course, disagreed and responded that the money was his father's, Dr. Clements, not his. A justice of the peace reviewed both arguments and sided with Victoria. He ruled that not only should Victoria keep Lily Ahmad, but James also had to pay his wife $250 in child support, which would be more than $8,000 today. The justice of the peace clearly did not believe James. The witchers were furious about James's violent behavior, but the first time they heard his full accusations against Victoria was in his response to her bill of complaint. And of course, they were even further enraged over his allegations of her infidelity. Wesley Witcher says that James's inflammatory response must have seemed like a declaration of war to Victoria's family. If you defame somebody, if you defame a woman or defame somebody's name, it carried a lot of weight back then. And you didn't get between people in the family, like an outsider coming in. I think these families were very guarded, very protected. I know they had big families, first of all, to work the fields. I mean, that's a given. But they also had big families really to kind of protect each other and watch out for each other. Wayne Witcher says it seems hard to believe that the Witchers didn't know about the abuse before Victoria filed the legal paperwork with all of those allegations. It deepened their disgust for James and allowed them to justify making their own threats. Maybe Vincent Witcher and maybe Vincent Addison Witcher, maybe they knew about this guy and they knew how he was. Maybe they saw him treat Victoria this way publicly and in private. Maybe they already had some issue with this guy, knowing that he was abusing and mistreating Victoria. More on that later. In the 19th century, wives were expected to show deference to their husbands in most situations, even if it put their own lives in danger. The Witchers fully supported Victoria's move to divorce James. But historian Bill Garant says Victoria risked living in disgrace because strangers might not have understood her situation because in the 1800s, divorce was considered almost taboo. Well, you know, you took a vow that said for better or worse, till death do you part and all that, and that's what they thought it meant. So if you end up in a bad marriage, deal with it. But there were certain grounds, sorts such as abandonment or infidelity, which in those days was not a non-serious matter. Now it was a much more serious matter then. And the honor code came into play with accusations during divorces too. In some ways, people in the 1800s cared much more about their public image than we even do today. It also reflected negatively on the other spouse. If you said, my wife's cheating on me, you're going to feel people are whispering because of you and vice versa. My husband's cheating on me. They're going to whisper it's because of you. So it just people dealt with it. But divorces were rare. They had to be for cause shown. Historian Carson Hudson specializes in Virginia history. He says that divorces were so rare because just cause was hard for women to prove. They were clearly at a disadvantage. Getting a divorce in 1860 Mm. seems kind of difficult to me. (laughs) A lot easier than it was in the 18th century. (laughs) Um, It depends on who wants the divorce, too. She wanted the divorce. Okay, well, for her, it's going to be an uphill battle because she's got to prove some cause to why she should live separately or maintain herself separately from her husband. Most people at this time, they can't stand each other or they just dislike each other. They don't really want to be husband and wife again, but they never divorce. They just live separately. 
But Wayne Witcher says that despite those social rules, it seemed that Victoria Clement was absolutely justified to seek a divorce from James. Sounds to me like Victoria just stood up for her rights. I think it's pretty brave of her to sue for divorce, considering the times in which she lived. I think that her family rallied behind her, stood up, and said, we're going to defend the honor of this woman. The Witchers and the Clements were once close, or at least cordial, once Victoria and James married. Now there was bitter acrimony that might never be healed. But the first step would be the closure that couples sometimes need after a divorce. That chapter of their lives is closed, and they can hopefully move on. And an abuser might then seek help and admit to all of the things that he was accused of. Judge Dimple Maholtra says that in her court, she's listened as abusers express real regret. But it's sometimes difficult to detect if it's truthful. You do see remorse, but sometimes that remorse is authentic and genuine, and sometimes that remorse is manipulation. And that's where experience comes into play, honestly. I mean, I have dealt with so many cases and have talked to both sides so many times that it's really easy to be able to kind of see which is which. Sometimes you really do genuinely have people who are remorseful and who kind of have that wake-up moment where they say, I need help. Would that be the case for James? Would he be genuinely apologetic? In just a few weeks, the Witchers would find out exactly how James and the Clements felt about them. Once Victoria filed her bill of complaint of divorce against James and he submitted a response, depositions were scheduled for September 21st, 1859. Both families would meet in Sandy Level, close to where the Witchers and the Clements lived. A slew of witnesses would be there too, to testify to what they saw. Historian Bill Garant explains what would happen next. Before you go to trial, the witnesses can be required to give sworn testimony. This enables the lawyers to know what the witness is going to say at the trial. And so you have a stenographer, and they're put under oath, and the lawyer asks them questions just like you would do at trial, and the witness answers the questions. But a deposition is like you and I are doing. You ask me questions, I answer, I'm sworn to tell the truth, I'm guilty of perjury if I don't. That's the deposition. As we learn more about both the Witchers and the Clements, it seemed clear that in 1859, each family was committed to its own side of the story. The Clements contended that Victoria was rarely home and seemed disinterested in her husband and her daughter. She was having an affair, they said, maybe several, and she enjoyed goading her faithful husband. The Witchers claimed that James Clement was a monster, a habitual abuser who was a horrible husband and a questionable father. Who was right? It would be up to legal professionals to figure it out during depositions with James and Victoria, along with various other witnesses. In the meantime, the couple was told by their families to avoid each other. There was too much animosity brewing between them and their relatives. But in this case, the distance wouldn't help the tension at all. This had been simmering for too long. And when their families would meet in court, the Witchers and the Clements would all arrive fully armed. And some of them wouldn't survive. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right... 
So it was just a tragedy. It was terrible. And it was a horrible thing for that part of Virginia because they'd fought in the war and they, they owned all the property and people looked up to them. And then this horrible thing happened. I feel like that divorce proceeding in 1859 was just a little spark when she was trying to get the divorce because at the time you didn't do that. I think that really hit the fan and they were just almost looking for a reason to get into something. All six of them, not just the Witchers or the Clements. It was threatening and it got out of hand and it got out of hand because the one guy in the courtroom accused the other guy of being a liar. And then all the threats and all the hatred and all the violence just bubbled over. What I'm wondering is why they didn't make them check their guns and knives at the door. Kind of interesting. They had to have known that this would happen. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold War Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical true crime that could use some attention email us at info at tenfoldmoremedia.com. Subscribe now on Amazon Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.